good morning, everyone. Uh, two weeks ago, my family and I drove into Salmon Arm to watch the Rugby World Cup final between England and South Africa. Now, my wife is from South Africa. Uh, her mom's family's been there actually since the 1680s. Um, but her dad is from England, so we had uh, fans on both sides, which was going to make for a very interesting day. Someone was going to be very happy and somebody not so much. Um, well, it was a glorious win for South Africa that day. Um, but I was, what I was really amazed, I'm not really a sports, this is the only jersey of any sort I own, actually. I'm not really a sports fan. I use my time doing other things. But um, what I was really amazed with after was the speech of the South African captain following the win. Let's just watch a section of this from Sia Kolisi. grateful for everything that uh, the team has, has been through. You know, we face a lot of challenges, um, but you know, the people of South Africa have gotten behind us, and we are so grateful for the people of South Africa. And you know, we have so many problems in our country, um, but to have a, a team like this, we you know we come from different backgrounds, different races, and we came together with one goal, and we wanted to achieve it. I really hope that we've done that for South Africa to show that we, we can pull together if we want to work and we achieve something. This was a historic game for South Africa. Um, Sia Kulisi is the first ever black captain of the South African team, which for a country um, that has been, which just had a really stained past with the apartheid laws in place for so many years that it barred the majority of the population in that country from voting, uh, from even being seen as full citizens. And so this was a big deal. And what I thought was so moving is that he took this as an opportunity to point to something much bigger, to something more important, even in the game itself. They just won the world finals, and he doesn't even talk really about that. Of all he could have said... What he chose to speak about is the challenges facing his country, and they are massive, like he said. One sports page says, Khaleesi urged South Africa, still torn by racial divides, poverty, and crime, 26 years after the end of apartheid, to use the triumph as an example. Again from his speech, so many problems in our country, but to have a team like this, he points to his team, we know we come from different backgrounds, different races, and we came together with one goal and wanted to achieve it. I didn't know anything about the man uh, prior to watching that speech, but this humble, gentle attitude that he had, how he beautifully pointed beyond himself, even beyond his team to something more significant, I thought, wow, there is something different about this guy. That gentle demeanor, that lack of arrogance, I was intrigued. Now, that didn't mean that he didn't play with grit and determination and effort. Um, he did, but he did it with grace. And the way he was talking about the healing of his nation, man, this sounded like good news to me. Kind of like what the gospel is all about, about restoring, putting back together what was once lost and broken. Now, in the series that we're doing on the book of Colossians, we've been looking at this little letter that Paul writes to a group of Jesus followers in a city in Colossae, in modern-day Turkey. And, and Paul talks here about 
exactly what God is up to. He says that God is healing the world and everyone who puts their trust in Jesus is going to be a part of that healing. Interestingly, in the, in the hall of, the, of, of our church here last week, I was chatting with one of uh, our many South Africans, and I was just telling him how impressed I was with Khaleesi's speech. And my friend, uh, who certainly knew much more about rugby than I did, um, he said, well, I'm not surprised uh, that you saw that in him. He is a committed follower of Jesus. You'll see that on his wristband right there. <laughs> you know, earlier in this letter, Paul had urged this community to keep growing in their connection with God so that their lives might bear fruit. That is, after all, what a healthy tree does. And it's an apt metaphor for our lives as well. But what kind of fruit? What does that look like? Well, I, I really felt like even in, in the speech is longer than this, but go and check out this guy's life. I, I really was seeing that in Khaleesi's life. Someone who is drawing up nutrients from his relationship with Jesus. And later in the letter, Paul would begin to talk about what this nutrients, what that bearing fruit would look like. He speaks of putting on virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Stay rooted in Jesus, Paul says to this group of people. And so that these things will grow up and bear fruit in your life. You'll begin to look like Jesus himself. And now, in our text this morning, we're picking up in chapter 2, That's exactly what Paul says is at the heart of this letter. Let me read to you from uh, verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you could open there with me. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, just before this section... Paul had had spoken in great detail about Jesus as being one and the same as the living God. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's our creator, our sustainer, but more than that too. He's the one who came in the flesh and let his life break apart so that he could heal the world. Through his death on the cross, Jesus is, uh, Paul argues, Jesus is totally wiping away the debt that our sins had bought for us, reconciling us to God and to others. And so he says they've received Jesus Christ as Lord. And he's writing this to a group of believers in a dangerous context in the Roman Empire. At that time of history, if you were a citizen, you would have to say something to the effect of Caesar is Lord. Um, when we were touring in Turkey in Ephesus, we actually saw these um, altars that would be around the city, and they had little dips in them. And people would be required to light fires and burn a little bit of incense to the local gods that were there, to Artemis um, or whomever it was in that city who was their local god. And so these Christians are stepping up, and they're saying, instead of Caesar is Lord, they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He is our maker. He is our loving leader. And to be rooted in him means I am giving allegiance to no one else. But then Paul goes on to offer more of a warning next. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul connects hollow and deceptive 
as a descriptor of the type of philosophy that he's addressing. Now, Paul is not against philosophy. Philosophy just means a lover of wisdom. So Paul is all on board with loving wisdom. But there's a type of philosophy that Christians were bumping up against that he says is truly empty, it's hollow, and he'll address that in a moment. Essentially, he's saying there are really bad ideas out there. There's bad ideas about God and the world, and you need to be on guard against them. And you know, the reality is that there are still bad ideas out there. One of the reasons that we celebrate Remembrance Day year in and year out is both to remember the brave sacrifice of those who served for the sake of others, and I am truly thankful for that. And it really matters that we would pause and and remember them this week. But Remembrance Day should also be, I desperately hope, a reminder that bad ideas can spread and have disastrous effects. The Nazi party had a particular view of the world, a set of philosophies, uh, not just of racism and nationalism, but as a way of taking those things and then dehumanizing people. And that led to unspeakable evil. I toured the war memorial in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, this spring when I was there. And, I mean, I've heard the stories, but when I saw some of the physical evidence of what was done, um, I came undone. I was so horrified, I couldn't even speak about it, some of the things I saw there. This is to say ideas matter. And the particular philosophies that the Nazi party leveraged, well, they either brought people on side or intimidated their people into either adopting or at least cowering to this horrendous vision of the world. To the point where Hitler could develop what he called the final solution, an aim to eradicate the Jewish people from off the face of the earth. How do you get there? To a place of believing you can legitimately wipe a whole people group out to believe you can create a superior race, which is typically known as the eugenics project. You know, in my, in my research this week, I was kind of reading a little bit about that, and I came across a quote from an article. It was called Eugenics Review, published in 1909. The writer says this, To Friedrich Nietzsche belongs the honor of founding the religion of eugenics. His aim was at a superman, An ideal of race of supermen is superior to the present mankind, many of whom, alas, have not even completed the stage of transition from animal to man, as a man is superior to the worm. Notice the language in that. Some have not even transitioned from animal to man. They are like a worm. And it's not a big deal to kill a worm now, is it? How do you throw people in gas chambers? by considering them not human. And notice too, Frederick Nietzsche is credited as giving the eugenics project its big religious ideas. He's probably most famous for declaring God is dead, God remains dead, and we killed him. See, Nietzsche knew if God exists, then humans are not just free to develop our views of the world or morality or ethics on our own. We are bound to listen to what God has told us, has revealed to us about life, about love, about how to live, and about the value of human life. For the eugenics project, which was essentially a breeding program to root out 
you know, so-called birth defects. And to some extent, that was considered certain races of people too. In order for this uh, project to proceed, there needed to be an unhinging of ideas from the biblical worldview that says all humans have value and dignity because we're created in the image of God. Nietzsche knew that with God, as described in the Bible, if God is in the picture, it would be morally reprehensible to proceed with this vision of life. So what do you do? You get rid of God. And Adolf Hitler adored Nietzsche's philosophy. Uh, This picture here is... um, Hitler at the uh, Nietzsche Museum staring and contemplating this image of Nietzsche, uh, the, the um, statue of him there. You know, in our day, some prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins have sketched out the belief that there is no God. And he says that uh, all we are as humanity is a cosmic accident, that our sole purpose in life is really to pass on our genes. And to Dawkins, we are only animals. There's nothing sacred or special about what it means to be human. Now, I would agree that we are technically mammals. That's the form in which God has created us, but that's not all we are. We bear the image of God and are of great dignity and worth because of it. And many, I would say even most secular people truly hold to beliefs like humans have intrinsic value, that all people should be treated with equality and dignity, but if we're honest, we have no reason to believe in these values if we hold to a materialistic view of the world. See, that materialistic view that there's no, nothing spiritual, um, that, that all we are is, well, basically we're here by accident. When we die, we rot, and our achievements won't be remembered because everything will be burned up with the sun eventually anyways. So the materialistic worldview does not actually lead to the view that humans are of inherent dignity and worth or that we have any real purpose in life. One person says it like this. It was Frederick Nietzsche who most ardently and eloquently argued that if the secular view of the universe is right, there can be no moral obligation. So we can't say humans must not do this or humans must do that. There's no obligation or that values which say that humans should be treated with equality and dignity. Um, He argued that if the secular view of the universe is right, we can't make any of those arguments. The Christian view of the world says that humanity and the rest of the material world is good because it's created by the loving God. It says that we humans are created in God's image. This means that all human life is an incredible inherent worth. Think of what that means if it's true. As a Christian person, It means that I have good reason, actually more than that, I have moral imperative to treat all humans, even those I disagree with, with dignity and respect. I can't treat any human with less than that as a Christian person. So Frederick Nietzsche, he argues that without God in the picture, we just have our preferences. What we like, what we choose as a society to say is right or wrong, but there's no outside way to say we ought to. Nothing is truly right or wrong if God is out of the picture. But the Christian view, I think, tells us what our heads and our hearts um, know is already there. There must be a way to evaluate good and right. And the good news is, well, there is. 
And this basis is God's own self. God's own character is the standard of what is good and pure and right. And that's most perfectly seen in the person of Jesus, in his own life. How? Well, because of what Paul says next. The whole basis of Paul's argument in this letter is that Jesus really is the one true God. Listen to verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, all that God is, is present there in bodily form, he's saying. Jesus, the Son of God, is God the Son who came in real history. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And that's why Christians can't mix just a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of New Age spirituality or any other opposing vision of the world. If Jesus is God, then only he sets our vision for life. He alone is our leader and our lover at the end of the day. And the pattern of life that Jesus lives, humbly giving, laying down his life for the sake of others, that's to define how Christian people live, and Hitler hated that idea. Oh, he, he publicly claimed to be a sort of Christian. Why? Because most of the German population had at least a Christian heritage. And Hitler, as a politician, knew that he had to leverage the name Christian if he were to gain any support in a free election. So how did that work? Well, he appointed a man named Alfred Rosenberg, a sort of church leader, you might say, who twisted the reality of who Jesus was. Uh, Rosenberg and others developed what they called positive Christianity. Uh, now listen to what some of the beliefs are. Uh, they denied, well, the Apostles' Creed. They said, that, that's not Christianity. They denied that Jesus was the Son of God. He was just like a really good preacher. They rejected the idea that the cross was in any way God's healing of the world. It was just how Jesus happened to die. And in the end, they went so far as to say that the Fuhrer, the leader, Hitler himself, was the herald of a new revelation. Like, you want to know what's true about the world? Listen to Hitler. He's the one who reveals what's true. That is twisted. That's messed up. But that's what, quote-unquote, positive Christianity was. All this to say, Hitler was in no way a believer in God as described in the Bible. Historian Paul uh, Bourbon, he writes that in private, Hitler scorned Christianity to his friends. But there were faithful Christian churches. They were often identified as the confessing church. And their pastors continued to hold to the teachings of the Bible. In fact, in 1935, 700 pastors were rounded up and imprisoned for not bowing to this evil and utterly false vision of Jesus. Here's a photo that includes um, uh, this guy on the far left in the middle. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to watch a movie about him tomorrow night at Young Adults. But he was one of those theologians who first stood up and said, this is not the gospel, what you're hearing. Uh, that is not true of the Christian faith. And as I was researching all of this, I couldn't help but be reminded of Paul. He's writing to this group of Christians from where? From prison, in chains. Why? Because instead of saying Caesar is Lord and bowing his knee to a false idea of, of God and the world, he said, no, Jesus is Lord. 
And he's writing to this little group of believers in an increasingly dangerous situation, saying to them, stay true to who God really is. Stay rooted in Jesus, in his way, in his life. They needed this reminder in the face of real pressure. The pastors of the Confessing Church in Germany during World War II needed this reminder. For those who are believers today, you and I still need this reminder. Don't be sidelined by bad ideas about Jesus. No, maybe our personal situation isn't dangerous in the same way, but for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe today, it really is. That's why we keep praying for them in our services. Not just for their safety, but that they would stay faithful to Jesus and his ways, that they wouldn't compromise. See, if we let our eyes drop from the reality of Jesus as God come in the flesh to heal the world, we could begin justifying really just living in self-centered ways. Uh, Maybe that even joke about injustices rather than stand with those who are mistreated in our world. We might even get on board with injustice. See, all ideas are based out of some view of the world, of where we come from, what the problem is with the world, what's the solution, and where history is headed. Everyone is working from some view of the world. That's why Paul says what he does next. Look at verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. If that's true, then the believers in Colossae have nothing ultimately to fear. And neither do you or I, if our trust is in Jesus too. Those who trust in Jesus, says, are brought into the fullness of knowing God personally. So Paul goes on, verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And some of us are thinking, wait, what? <laughs> that, that's not an analogy that our ears are used to. Okay, it sounds a little weird to us. We're thinking too much information, Paul. You could save us the mental picture maybe. Um, but we need to recognize, A, this is normal, uh, a normal imagery for Paul's setting. He's a Jewish man, of course. But he's writing to a, peop- a group of people who are primarily Gentile, meaning they're not Jewish, meaning they haven't physically been circumcised the way that Jewish males would have been. See, that had been a badge of membership into the people of God up to the point of Jesus coming. But now Paul is saying no more. Um, All people, every nation, everyone is welcome as God's people through simple trust in Jesus. And he's also sparing them some serious discomfort. He's saying you don't need to be physically circumcised. You get all of the rights of being God's people simply by being in Christ. You have everything you need for this new life. Here's how he makes that point. Verse 12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now, baptism, if you're unfamiliar, that's the Christian practice of dunking people under the water as a way for them to publicly identify with Jesus and his church. When Christians dunk people underwater, this says your old life with you at the center is buried. It's dead. It's over with. And then when they come up out of the water, it's saying, you are now alive with God. 
just as Jesus came up out of the grave, you are guaranteed to new life starting now and after death carrying on with him forever. But how does this work? How does that become possible? Paul tells us next, verse 13, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. Like my resume, um, before a a perfectly holy God, it doesn't look good actually. I, I know that I haven't lived the life of love for God and for other people the way that God has required of me. So I can't point at my resume and say, oh, look, God, I I did pretty good here. No. He says, I was dead. And that's true. But he says this, he took it away. Wiped the charges clean. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them, or pardon me, victory over them on the cross. Now, for those who were fearful, maybe of the local deities, if you walked around the ancient world, you would see um, statues on every corner. And these people, these Gentile people, they were raised thinking, man, I've got to somehow pay homage to that so that I don't have something terrible happen to me. Paul says, forget all that. You aren't, you aren't tied down, nailed down to giving honor to anyone. All the spiritual forces have been taken captive. Jesus is victorious over it. Let it go. Isn't that beautiful? Now here, another question for you would be this. Um, What do you do with your guilt? Uh, Every one of us knows that we hurt others when we live out of our self-centered nature. We even hurt ourselves in that. The character that Will Smith plays in the incredible movie Seven Pounds Man, he is saddled with this incredible guilt after he kills his wife in a car accident that he caused while he was texting and driving. What does he do with his guilt? Boy, he knows he needs to pay for it somehow. He just can't live with himself. So he believes that he needs to donate his organs to let his life be broken to give life to someone else, to pay for what he's done. Man, that film gets me. Because... Because I think if I were him, I would feel the same way. The guilt would crush me. But what Paul is saying here in this text is that, yes, actually all of us are guilty. In various ways, we've broken God's design to love God and others wholly and perfectly. But instead of us having to pay, God pays. Again, Paul says it this way, he forgave all of our sins. That means he took the debt and it's no longer there anymore. He takes it away by nailing it to the cross. So what assurance do I have that I can stand before God at the end of my life and be welcomed into God's good future? Can I really just point at my resume and see, say, see, I, like I've done lots of good things? No, I can't. I, I'm like Will Smith's character there. I know I would have to pay with my own life. And there's nothing I can do that would be enough to earn God's love or forgiveness. But the good news is I don't have to and neither do you. Jesus paid it all. And we might think, man, that sounds nice, but how would I ever believe that? Like, really? Well, I I hope I've made a case. If some of you are doubting this, um, I hope I've made a case that 
there might be some sort of God in the mix if we're to believe that there's meaning to life and dignity and value to human life. That might get us far enough to say okay to God, but of some sort. But Jesus, well, um, let's go there. No serious historian doubts the reality that Jesus, coming from the region of Galilee, lived and that he died on a Roman cross. Uh, Roman historians, Jewish historians at the same time, they write about this. It's not just in the Bible, but it is there too, of course. So the, ultimately, the question boils down to, did Jesus rise again in history? If so, then what he says about himself, what's recorded in the Bible, like what is his earliest followers, what did they believe about him? All of it is validated if he came back from the dead. Now, I don't have time today to sketch out all of the reasons why, but I have photocopied a short um, chapter from a book that's in the foyer if you want to pick that up, if you have some doubts about that, and it'll give you a good summary. But maybe just really briefly, I would point to Paul's own experience. The guy who's writing this letter was, well, he hated Christians. He was adamantly opposed to the church. He was, in fact, a part of not only persecuting but killing Christians and was on a journey to do just that when he met the risen Jesus in a powerful way. And his life was so changed in that moment that he began to preach this good news that Jesus was the savior of all. Even to the point of being imprisoned like he is now and facing his eventual death. Why would you put yourself in that sort of danger except that he met the risen Christ and it changed the direction of his life entirely. That's just one small piece of historical evidence we have to at least consider. So I would suggest to you that there is no question more important for you to answer than this. Is Jesus who he says he is? Did he really rise from the dead? Because if it's true, either your trust in him or your rejection of him is the greatest of consequences, both for now and for your eternal destiny. Someone might say, well, if I can't prove it 100%, I'm not going to believe it. I'd say, okay, but, if you, if, but can you prove 100% that it is not true? Because if that's your approach, you at least have to be consistent. And you'll have to recognize that not believing in Jesus is also a faith position. You're acting on faith to believe that. So here's my encouragement. It would be to at least let your faith be informed. And in order for it to be informed, you have to at least look into the arguments. Otherwise, you're exercising not reasoned faith, but blind faith in your own position. When asked about why he was a Christian, even if he couldn't have 100% undoubtable certainty about the question of Jesus, which I'm arguing we can never have, actually, we can't be 100% certain or uncertain for or against Jesus. The brilliant 17th century French mathematician philosopher, physicist, uh, Blaise Pascal, he offered this. He said, if I believe in and follow Jesus with my life and find out at the end of it that it wasn't true, then I've lived my life in a way that values others, that promotes peace and goodwill, and that elevates justice and love. Yes, it will be costly to follow Jesus, no doubt about it. There will be things I have to give up to follow the Jesus way, but if I don't trust in Jesus... If I live for myself at the end and find out it was true, I've lost everything. So if you're, if you're here, and if you're unsure about the whole Jesus thing, 
the most significant thing you can do is actually look into it. Take a copy of that chapter. Uh, email me. I will go for coffee with you. I promise I will. See, there are very good historical reasons to believe the good news of Jesus. Not to mention freedom from guilt, hope for a future with God, full of creativity and meaningful work and restored relationships, and the strength right now to live in the presence with a newfound sense of purpose and joy. And you need to see this. This invitation to life in Christ is not an invitation to quote-unquote get religious, if what you mean by that is to work hard to ensure that you're on God's good side, not at all. It's to recognize that God has acted in history out of love for you. It's not, I obey so that maybe God will accept me one day. No, the gospel says this. God has already accepted me in Christ through what he's done. If I put my trust there, then I'm, I'm his. I belong to him and I simply respond to him. I obey him out of love and gratitude. That's the gospel. And that's why Paul says what he does next. And this is the last bit we'll do before we wrap up here. He doesn't want this little Jesus community in Colossae to be duped into some sort of man-made religion. Listen to what he writes starting at verse 16. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Man, their sinful minds have made them proud. They're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You see the promises there? Stay connected to Jesus, and you're going to grow. Verse 20, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. You don't need to fear those, uh, you know, those quote-unquote gods on the street corners. Not at all. You're free from that. So why do you keep following its rules <laughs> of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are merely human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Wow, those are strong words from Paul. He's really concerned that they don't get duped by bad ideas. They're being tempted to think wrongly about Jesus, that somehow he's not enough, that I have to perform some, uh, a religious set of rules in order to get in with God. Paul says, never. That's to put yourself in the place of thinking, man, I am ultimately in control of God. So Paul challenges them and us. There is no rival to the authority of Jesus anywhere. Here's how one scholar puts it. All power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, or racial, have the potential to become rival to Christ, beckoning his followers to submit themselves to them in order to find fuller security. You might just want to hit pause for yourself on that question. Is there something other than Jesus that you're being tempted to find deeper security in? Or a sense of life or purpose where you say, well, actually, Jesus gives me this bit, but I need to go somewhere 
else for that? Paul is arguing there is no other place to go. The invitation, here's what N.T. Wright says, to submit to whatever else gains you security is as blasphemous, meaning it's totally against God and his way. It's as blasphemous as it is unnecessary. Christ brooks no rivals. His people need no one but him. Man, that is good news. His people need no one but him. And that's true. We can never put God in our debt saying, well, I obeyed you, now you owe me. Or we can never think, oh, I don't need to trust Jesus for life. If there's a God, he'll accept me based on my good needs. My question is, why on earth would you believe that? This text tells us the exact opposite, that it's only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be made right with God and have new life. Where does this leave you? You know, as I was digging into the uh, Khaleesi backstory, I wanted to know more about this guy. I discovered that even though Khaleesi grew up going to church with his grandma, he actually just recently committed himself fully to a relationship with Christ. Here's what the article goes on to say. In March of this year, Khaleesi sparked controversy when his wife found a risque photo of him, a part of me, photo of another woman in his Instagram direct messages. Over the next few months, the messy saga played out in public view. Khaleesi has learned a lot, including what it means to truly follow Jesus. Here's how Khaleesi puts it in his own words. While struggling with a lot of things personally, temptations, sin, and lifestyle choices, I realized I wasn't living according to what I was calling myself, a follower of Christ. I was getting by, but I hadn't decided to fully commit myself to Jesus Christ and start living according to his ways, Khaleesi said. Walking alongside a spiritual mentor, he continued, I've been able to discover the truth and saving power of Christ in a whole new way. This new life has been given, pardon me, this new life has given me a peace in my heart I've never experienced before. I don't have to understand everything in life. And there's so many things I don't, he added, but I know that God is in control of it all. My job is to do the best I can and leave the rest in his hands. See, rather than hiding his sin or trying to do it on his own, Khaleesi decided to trust Christ with his life. And he's found a peace, as he said, in my heart I've never experienced before. I have too. Have you? Let's pray. God, we thank you that this text and what it tells us about Jesus, about new life in him, about his authority over every power, we thank you that it's true. And that through putting our trust in you, Jesus, we can have new life. Life that is free to live as you made us to. So Lord, we give ourselves back to you. And if there's any in this room who haven't walked into that freedom yet, Lord, I just want to pray for them right now specifically, that they might look into you, that they might open their heart to you, they might be transformed forever because of you. Simply by saying, God, I recognize I need you. I have blown it. I haven't loved as you've called me to, and I need to be forgiven. I trust you now with my life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.